Welcome to The Advocast, a conversation with the advocates for human rights. I'm Lindsay Grising. I'm Lisa Borden. And I'm Jennifer Prestall. We're some of the advocate staff members joining you for this episode. Earlier in this podcast series, we talked a little bit about the Biden administration's remarks about systemic racism and police violence to the United Nations Human Rights Council. Those remarks represented a dramatic departure from the position of the Trump administration that these problems simply don't exist. Here's a quick excerpt from the statement delivered by Acting Assistant Secretary of State Lisa Peterson last month. The United States is dedicated to eliminating racial discrimination and the use of excessive force in policing. The Department of Justice has issued guidance stating unequivocally that racial profiling is wrong and has prohibited racial profiling in federal law enforcement practices. Many states have done the same. Our Department of Justice prosecutes individual officers who violate someone's civil rights and investigates police departments that might be engaging in a pattern or practice of conduct that deprives persons of their rights. We also seek to proactively prevent discrimination or the use of excessive force by participating in increased training of federal, state, and local law enforcement officers across the country. Now that Derek Chauvin has been convicted of murdering George Floyd, it's time to turn our focus to holding the Biden administration to its words. Just before the defense rested in the case in the Chauvin trial, Lisa had a chance to talk with law professor and former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance to find out how the Biden administration might follow up on these commitments. Now let's talk more about what the federal government should do and can actually do with our guest, Joyce Vance. Joyce was U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama during the Obama administration and is currently a professor of law at the University of Alabama Law School. If you're an MSNBC fan, you've more than likely seen Joyce's frequent legal analysis contributions there. Joyce, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's wonderful to get to be with you, Lisa. Given your deep experience with the DOJ, um, I wanted to talk some about what the U.S. said in its presentation at the U.N. last month. Um, We've heard the clip of Lisa Peterson giving her presentation in which they talked about um, some of the things that DOJ either has done or or can do uh, to try to help rein in some of the police violence and uh, the racialized violence that's going on in the country. Uh, But, you know, there are more than 12,000 local police departments operating in the U.S. and and the tragically frequent police killings of black people um, overwhelmingly involve officers from local police jurisdictions. I think um, I read that more than a quarter of the police killings happen in police departments of the country's 100 largest cities. And there doesn't appear to be any correlation between the rates of police killings and the rates of violent crime. Um, So in the statement, um, they talked about the DOJ having issued guidance on racial profiling. They talked about um, civil rights prosecutions of police officers and pattern and practice investigations. And they talked about training. Um, Are these more or less a complete description of what the federal government can do? um, And, or what else can they do? And how effective do you think those efforts can be? The federal government and specifically DOJ can do a lot in this area. 
you make a really important point. It's not just one system. You know, you don't wave a, a magic wand and fix everything at once. There are 50 states, there are police departments, there are sheriffs, there's state law enforcement, there's local law enforcement. Some places there are different municipal, um, you know, zones of, of um, criminal justice. So it's a very complicated, multi-layered system. But DOJ can not only work within the federal system, it has a bully pulpit to use for state and local partners and often has a carrot in the form of grant funding and, and other programs and resource allocation. So DOJ is a major player here, but here's the problem. We are, you know, it's April now. Merrick Garland is the only confirmed uh, official at the Justice Department. Today, the uh, woman, Kristen Clark, who's nominated to run the Civil Rights Division, finally got a hearing. We're still waiting on votes for the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco and the Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta. And still these key folks get into place. It's very difficult uh, for DOJ to make the systemic process it needs to make, although I would note that they're fabulous. Um, you know, acting folks in place who understand how to use DOJ's abilities to engage in this area. And one of the most important things that DOJ can do is restore the consent decree process that then Attorney General Sessions ended, which permits DOJ to engage with departments that have deficient practices, deficient training, that have had a lot of incidents. They can do that even in the absence of criminal convictions and work with those departments under uh, court uh, enforced consent decrees to uh, uh, make sure that their practices uh, become best practices and essentially to force them to rectify the threads of racial injustice that sometimes run through their enforcement practices. You mentioned funding, and I, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about what what might be possible using funding mechanisms, because I know that um, the consent decree process is a lengthy one, and of course, it's going to be something that that focuses on you know one department at a time. Um, what kind of uh, carrot and stick efforts could the department make using funding mechanisms? DOJ's Office of Justice Programs, OJP, is largely uh, in the business of funding best practices and programs across the state. And that's not just when it comes to enforcement. That can be prevention, that can be investigation, that can be enforcement. It can even be work with reentry with people returning to their communities after being incarcerated. So they have a very broad portfolio. Um, I'll give you an example that hits close to home. I think it's okay to talk about this. Uh, a jurisdiction that you and I both know and, and love and have practiced law in had a problem that was identified when we looked at some data. There appeared to be a pattern of, I don't know if it was intentional or not, um, but a disparate impact in pretrial detention rates based on the race of people who had been charged. And so I was able to go to the chief judge in the circuit and to explain that they had this problem. To his credit, he was horrified and wanting to know what they could do to fix it. So that was a great place to start, right? It meant that we weren't looking at a lawsuit situation. Through OJP, what we were able to do was to give them a grant to both assess the problem and a technical assistance grant to fix the problem. 
that's what you really need to see in action because sometimes when good people become aware that problems exist, they lack the resources to fix those problems. That can be especially true in a state like Alabama. So for DOJ to be able to engage makes a big difference you know, that's a very specific example, but DOJ also runs pilot programs to identify best practices. And so one of the Obama era programs was called the National Initiative on Building Community Trust. And it was a pilot project designed to figure out what police departments needed to do better. It essentially encouraged people to get into that space and, and you know, defunding has become, I think, a, a dirty word for um, for the obvious reasons. Some people believe that it's the same thing as abolition, which it isn't. But the National Initiative thought at a very deliberate way about issues like implicit bias and procedural justice and restorative justice and helping police figure out what their lane was and what they should be doing. So those sorts of programs, which can then be used to send best practices out across the country really matter. They're really important. I assume those kinds of programs and that one in particular probably didn't fare well during the Trump administration. Um, well, fortunately, some of these programs had proceeded to the point where they were able to develop separate lines of funding, funding from private groups like the Arnold Foundation or other folks who engage in criminal justice. And, you know, it's a really interesting thing. Criminal justice reform has always had more bipartisan support than many other areas. So even during the Trump administration, some of this work moved forward. But other work, you'll remember the president, the former president famously um, banned uh, training on implicit bias and, and inclusivity. And so in other areas, it was stymied. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about, and you and I have talked a little bit about this in the past, about what feels to me like a disconnect in the federal government between civil rights and human rights. Um, so here we have, you know, an administration that has come in um, with a very strong position on human rights at the UN and in the State Department uh, and has said, you know, we're putting human rights at the center of, of U.S. policy, um, has rejoined the UN Human Rights Council and is running to um, be restored as a full member in the next uh, election cycle. But back here, um, there seem to be silos in terms of where human rights and civil rights sit. At the DOJ, there's a civil rights division, as you mentioned, that deals with a lot of issues that overlap really substantially with US obligations under international human rights treaties, certainly systemic racism and police violence, but also voting rights and prison conditions and, and many other areas in which the civil rights division is engaged. But these international obligations of the US are not a consideration in the work of the Civil Rights Division or the DOJ generally. And they're instead considered to be the province of the State Department. Why, why do you think that is? So I can't really speak to that. That's not something um, that would come into to play in my job, which may speak to the question that you're asking. My statutory authority as a US attorney was to enforce US criminal law. Um, to defend the United States when it got sued. And of course, as you will remember, to um, uh, sue other units of government when they were uh, legislating or taking other action in conflict with the Constitution. But it's, it's 
I think important, and this is one of the reasons that we want to have good, strong, functioning democratic institutions to make sure that those connections are made between leadership in the different agencies so that we can fully vindicate these sorts of important interests. And then the last thing that I would say is that budgets are moral documents, right? You can tell what your moral values, what your priorities are based on your budgetary allocations. And so to the extent that we see budgets that fully fund spaces in the Justice Department, not just the Civil Rights Division, but for instance, US attorneys who are involved in this area, or the Community Relations Service, the, the um, entity established by the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that plays a role in mediating community tensions when racial issues boil over. It'll be important to see funding for all of these issues and specifically, as you mentioned, to ensure that voting rights work can go forward and that prison cases like the one in Alabama can go forward. During the Obama administration, the DOJ's Civil Rights Division and the White House jointly often uh, conducted some fairly frequent convenings with civil rights organizations on a wide variety of issues. And it, it was great to see, you know, the ability of civil rights organizations that I worked with at the time, um, you know, be able to to come to these meetings and share ideas and and give our feedback to um, to the attorney general and to the White House. Uh, I was fortunate to be invited to attend a few of those myself. Um, what, if anything, do you think that civil society organizations like the Advocates could do to persuade the Biden administration or Merrick Garland? to dismantle the silo a little bit and to, um, to include human rights organizations as part of that same robust discussion and collaboration that I think will happen again um, under, under Merrick Garland with Vinita Gupta and with Kristen Clark. That's a really great question. And I think it's a very important one. I apologize, my dogs seem to be barking in the background. Um, my husband is not being a good podcast assistant today and keeping them quiet, I'm afraid. But I'm a huge fan of getting in a room with people and talking because the more we learn, the more we understand, the more good we're able to do as public servants. And one of the most important ways that that happened for me in this space was that under the auspices of the Leadership Conference on Human and Civil Rights, at least once a year, there'd be a major convening where the leadership of the department would sit down with the leadership of all of the major civil rights and human rights groups, whether that was women, women's rights, groups that advocated for Muslim communities or immigrant communities, some of the traditional civil rights organizations, LGBTQ groups. I mean, it was a very expansive group. It, it happened up in you know one of those huge, enormous meeting rooms in DOJ that could fit hundreds of people, but it was highly organized. Um, Wade Henderson was the head of the leadership conference when I was there and Wade would survey their members before we met to try to surface the most important issues that DOJ could engage on to further the work of the groups. Obviously they had jurisdiction and work that they were doing that didn't involve us, but there were always key areas where they wanted to work with us. I think the kind of issues that you're raising are appropriate for a meeting like that, or for a meeting with Vanita Gupta once she's confirmed, she'll be the Associate Attorney General, the number three person at DOJ. But of course her background is that she uh, was the acting head of the Civil Rights Division 
during the second term of the Obama administration. And she has a background with both the ACLU um, and the leadership conference. So I think the important thing is that Biden has not just expressed a commitment to, but he has followed through by appointing leaders who care about these issues, who demonstrated that they care about these issues. This is our time. If we are going to make progress on expanding the way that government looks at civil and human rights, this is the moment where it needs to happen. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us today, your, your insights about the Justice Department and as well as what's going on with the Chauvin trial have been really helpful. It's been really nice to be with you. You know, Lisa, we've been friends for a long time, but I'm a big fan of the way that you've expanded criminal justice reform and, and civil rights work to, to really happen under this banner of human rights work, which is, I think, the goal and, and how we need to all view these issues. So I'm looking forward to becoming a listener of the podcast and to following your work. Thank you. If you'd like to hear more of Joyce's insights on the Chauvin case and many other legal issues, check out her podcast with three other really impressive women lawyers. It's called Sisters-in-Law, and it's available on all the usual podcast outlets as well as on Facebook and YouTube. I think one of the things that was significant for me in thinking about this was how um, there's been a call locally, so community activists have been calling for outside investigation for a while. So it was really interesting to hear about really the whole toolbox that the federal government, and I think historically, if you look at what happened in the 1960s, for example, and the civil rights movement, that federal toolbox, even though the tools were slightly different, was really, really important to making change. Yeah, and you know, Joyce talked about the, um the consent decree process, which was a, a huge tool in, in all kinds of civil rights contexts for many years. And then which Joyce, when um, Trump administration was in office, Jeff Sessions said, we're not gonna be doing that anymore. Uh, and you know, a lot of civil rights activists were really appalled to, to hear that. So um, we, Joyce mentioned that she expected it to be revived. And now, um, you know, just earlier this week, Merrick Garland has in fact opened an inquiry into the Minneapolis Police Department. So um, I think we can expect to see a lot of what Joyce was talking about in terms of um, the federal government trying to help the MPD um, with reform, but also potentially filing a lawsuit if that doesn't move along um, and, and seeking to enter into a consent decree either before or after a lawsuit. I also see, I see it as being somewhat analogous to um, the international human rights system and the role that that plays in terms of being an outside, you know, outside of the local context. Um, being able to come in a little bit more independently and do, you know, do the kind of analysis. The other thing that is also something we see in the international context is this concept of a pattern or practice. So pulling it back from one 
you know, individual case, which is certainly what we saw with the George Floyd um, case and the, and the Derek Chauvin trial, but looking at the totality of the circumstances for um, in the international context being, you know, a gross human rights violations, a pattern or practice of gross um, and serious human rights violations. Yeah, the, the interesting thing that I thought was that they have the ability to do this kind of um, in each jurisdiction, um, but it does seem like there's lots of call to just look at this nationwide, right? Given that, you know, the day that the trial was announced, there was another police involved killing in Ohio. And so federal investigation into Minneapolis PD does nothing to help the person in Ohio. And I just wonder, um, you know, if, if this might be something that they take on more, more holistically. I, I really enjoyed Joyce mentioning that this is our time um, and that she really thinks that there, that, you know, the time is ripe for this kind of change. And I wonder if there is a way to kind of do this more holistically instead of looking one state at a time or one police department at a time. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a little bit worrisome because you do run smack into the brick wall of, you know, federalism and the fact that we, you know, so many powers are left to the states and then the states delegate them to, you know, counties and cities. And so there's some, you know, 12 or 13,000 police departments in this country. And yeah, to pick them off one at a time is really going to take a thousand years. Um, what I guess, what I hope is that there will be enough of these investigations launched and they will be aggressive enough that it prompts other departments to say, well, we better get our house in order before the DOJ comes because you never know where they're gonna decide to go next. Yeah, that's, that's a really hopeful and, and good point. Um, Jennifer, you mentioned, you know, the, the importance of taking this from an individual matter to looking at the pattern and practice issue. And uh, that, that brings to mind another thing that I read this week, which was about, you know, police chiefs across the country um, coming out after the verdict and saying, well, this is great, you know, because it, let's uh, everybody know that police officers and police departments are not going to tolerate this kind of bad behavior. Um, and, and, you know, it seems like once again, it's to me sort of an effort to lay all the blame at the feet of bad apples, um, which you know, is a detraction from the need for systemic reform. Yeah, and I think we saw that in, you know, the prosecution's closing, specifically stating that this wasn't putting Minneapolis PD on trial, it was Derek Chauvin that was on trial. And I know there was, you know, a very strong reaction to that, because this is such a microcosm for those changes that people, um, you know, that we all know need to happen. Um, and uh, Trevor Noah shared a really, I think, good point um, in one of his clips recently, where he said, you know, we're looking at these bad apples, but it seems as though the whole tree is rotten. Um, and I think that's that's what you're getting at as well, Lisa, is that 
it, it can't just be a couple of bad apples when this is this is happening. And I think that's why there is so much demand for looking at change um, that we're, we're gonna be talking about in later episodes as well with people who have ideas of what that change looks like. As we close this episode, we wanted to share some thoughts about the announcement made the morning after the Chauvin verdict that the Department of Justice was opening a civil investigation to determine whether the Minneapolis Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of unconstitutional or unlawful policing. Many of us remember our outrage about the horrific beating of Rodney King by Los Angeles police officers caught on video in 1991 and the riots and the national protests after those officers were acquitted on state criminal charges. In 1994, Congress responded by giving the Attorney General authority to investigate and litigate cases involving a pattern or practice of conduct by law enforcement officers that violates constitutional or federal rights. These pattern or practice cases are one of the United States Department of Justice's most important tools for investigating and reforming systemic police misconduct. It's not a replacement for individual accountability, but it is a way to address problems at a broader organizational level. We see parallels for this in the international human rights system. For example, the UN Human Rights Council's complaint procedure is a way to bring consistent patterns of gross and reliably attested violations of human rights to the attention of the council, regardless of where they take place in the world. Less than a week after announcing the Minneapolis investigation, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that the Justice Department would also open a pattern or practice investigation into Louisville-Jefferson County Metro Government and the Louisville Metro Police Department, whose officers shot and killed Breonna Taylor in March 2020. We dedicate this episode to Attorney General Merrick Garland for reinstating pattern or practice investigations after the previous administration halted them and for exercising the authority given by the Department of given to the Department of Justice by Congress to use this important tool to address systemic problems in policing in the United States. Until next time. Thanks for listening to The Advocast, presented and produced by the Advocates for Human Rights. To learn more about The Advocates and what we do, visit theadvocatesforhumanrights.org.